Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we have heard a lot about the Russia investigation that's being led by special counsel Bob Mueller. Uh, We did get an indictment this week of Paul Manafort and his uh, co-worker for a long time, Rick Gates. Also, uh, we learned that uh, former President Trump foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos pleaded guilty and is cooperating uh, with the prosecutors here to break this down and give us some more insights, particularly from the Russian side, as Richard Kahn, managing partner from your Eurasia Advisors uh, based in New York. Richard, always a pleasure to speak with you. What are we not picking up on with respect to the indictment and the news that we've gotten this week that we ought to be focusing on that's more telling than perhaps people realize? Well, great to see you again, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. The uh, There are a few elements to it that I don't think are commonly uh, known or thought about, uh, and I'll focus on two. One has to do with the linkage that Mueller is making in the Manafort indictment to Ukraine. And the second has to do with the concept of compromat, which I've spoken about in the past. Vis-a-vis Ukraine, uh, you know, certainly the White House and others are basically saying in defense, look, this has nothing to do with Russia. But what is going to come out, because it's certainly true, is that Ukraine, prior to the Poroshenko period, which we're in now, Uh, was under the control of Russia through Yanukovych, who was the person that Manafort was working for at that time. What Mueller is going to show is going back all the way to 2006, when uh, Manafort was working for one of the leading oligarchs of Russia, very close to Putin, a gentleman uh, named Deripaska. He's going to show a course of conduct on the part of Manafort, which uh, demonstrates very, very close ties with Russia. And he's going to put that context into play vis-a-vis Ukraine. It's going to be one piece in the mosaic that's going to show the involvement of various people in the White House, including Trump, with Russia. Uh, As you know, it's hard to think of people in the White House right now that do not have ties with Russia. So uh, I think it's important to realize that the that Ukraine is essentially a code word for Russia in this context, in this indictment. And that is going to be an easy thing to show because, frankly, everybody in, in the Russian world is is very well aware of these facts. So uh, the second point to talk about comes from the plea agreement. Uh, there are all sorts of details in here that are interesting and that link in the White House, of course, into uh, what I think Trump has called collusion. We can call it cooperation. Uh, uh, Mueller, I think, is going to eventually try to show that that's part of a conspiracy against the United States. Uh, but this is an example, from um, from my perspective, of of clear compromat. Compromat, just to make clear what this is about, is a situation where your opponent has information about you that is potentially damaging. In this case, the FSB, knowing about communications that the Trump campaign had with them that were cooperative, trying to get information that would help the campaign uh, from, in this case, a source that may potentially be illegal, such as the hacking of Clinton's emails. In that situation, if the uh, other party, in this case, the Trump team, does not disclose the information, there is a mutual secret that you have. Both sides are aware of an embarrassing fact, 
And that constitutes compromat because it puts the FSB, puts Russia in a position where they can basically simply be friendly and say, of course, we're not going to disclose this. Richard, we're you friends. Th- you think that there is evidence that there is this kind of compromat? Well, what I'm saying is the Papadopoulos plea agreement lays out one example of that. That's, I think there'll be far, far more of it. But that is one very tangible example where there is evidence, sworn testimony now, evidence of meetings that took place. We have now something that came out today in the paper that it was discussed openly at a meeting with Trump as well as with other people in his campaign. That's the type of information that Trump did not want to have come out in the campaign and still does not want to have come out in the campaign. And that's a horrible position for the president of the United States or for any senior people in our country to be in. You don't want the FSB having information that you don't want to have come out. Uh, Richard, do you think the goal uh, in Moscow all along was was it to get a President Trump elected because of some sort of quid pro quo type of relationship? Or was it disrupt the American political machine, just tear America apart at the seams? Um, and depending on the answer, do they, you know, if, if you're sitting in Moscow right now, do you think, do you feel like a winner? <laughs> or do you feel like it's, it's backfiring on them that all this is coming out? Well, Mike, let me start with this. We and, you know, Eurasia Advisors and I certainly don't take a, a simple view that Russia's bad, we're good. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, Russia has a side uh, in terms of how it views conduct against him by the U.S., by us or other Western powers. Uh, and, and they have some valid points to make. Obviously, as an American, I feel we have far more uh, legitimacy in our arguments. But ultimately, you know, Russia uh, genuinely feels that... Uh, you know, one, that they have a right to protect their system. We may not value their more or less, uh, uh, you know, what I would view as a, a dictatorial structure or old world style, almost medieval style structure, but they feel they have the right to defend that. Uh, they do feel also that we've taken in the United States and in the West strong steps against them with sanctions that they don't feel were appropriate. They don't think we took into account their positions in Ukraine when they you know, needed to have their military bases in Crimea protected from their perspective because they only had two bases outside of the country while we had over 700. Right. So there, there, there's, they have reasons why they felt they had to take certain action. Doesn't justify it, but what they're, they did—they're punching in, back in in their eyes, not not being the aggressor. They, they are clearly punching back in in a way that they think is is not to get gain, in my view, revenge, but to be effective. I think they genuinely wish to change U.S. policy towards them. I think they operate on a long-term basis, seeking assets in Western countries, whether in the media, whether in politics, to help support them in this. And again, from their perspective, they just want to be treated fairly. From ours, they're interfering with our electoral process. And I think that's what happened here. So based on what we've learned from the indictments and from the George Papadopoulos plea, it sounds like you think that there's enough to tie all of this back to President Trump very clearly in the way that Mueller uh, is uh, expected to or was sort of setting out to do. Well, look, each listener will decide at what point they think the evidence is sufficient to make a showing that at least we should be, you know, uh, view the president as someone perhaps that's untrustworthy in this area. Obviously, Congress feels that way. They passed the sanctions law, you know, virtually unanimously, not giving him the right to alter it to Russia's favor. 
But uh, yeah, from my perspective, I don't have any doubt that uh, having read the indictment and see the plea agreement, where one of the directions that Mueller is going in, and it's going to be, in my view, this conspiracy against the interests of the United States at the highest levels of government. And so for that reason, I view it as a watershed event in United States history. I don't think this is a small thing. And ultimately, I think now uh, we are at a point where any objective observer would, uh, would see evidence, at least some evidence now, of cooperation between Russia and the United States, not just what we just saw come out, but obviously tying that into the meeting that took place at Trump Plaza, right. which incidentally, did you know, those key emails did not start with the words, Lisa, by the way, I've got fabulous news. Russia wants to help us. Right. That was missing. And the reason it's missing, I think we're going to see, is because it was simply part of a course of dealing. Richard Kahn, I could speak with you all afternoon. Uh, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Richard Kahn, managing partner of Eurasia Advisors, which is based in New York City. certain time for bonds. What is a bond fund manager to do? Well, here to tell us is Steve Peacher. He's president of Sun Life Investment Management, which oversees about $44 billion and is based in Wellesley, Massachusetts. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You mostly invest in real estate and debt investments. And I'm wondering what has been the biggest, most recent allocation shift. Can you describe it? Uh, certainly. Well, thanks for having me. We, um, in addition to the money we manage for other institutions, which is $44, 45000000000 billion, we also manage Sun Life's general account, which is about $105 billion. So I'll answer that question relative to the money that we manage for Sun Life. And we've been really been doing two things. One is, at the margin, going up in quality. I don't think we're scared of these markets, but valuations are tighter, spreads are tighter, um, uh, real estate valuations are, are are higher, so we're trying. We're kind of modestly cautious. We want to have dry powder if markets sell off. We don't know when they will, but at some point they will. So I would say we're going up in quality a bit. We've taken our high yield allocations down a bit. How much? Um, well, they were never huge for us. We tend to be an investment grade buyer, um, but we've. I would say we've probably cut them in half. Um, in the past year or so. Yeah, within the past uh, year to eighteen months. Um, we also make heavy use of assets in the private markets, private debt markets. Um, we still find we can get extra yield there without sacrificing quality. So we really want to be cautious about the risk we're taking in this in this market environment. Uh, Steve, the Treasury Secretary this week came out and said, uh, you know, initially he thought the ultra long bond would be a good idea. Now he's not so sure there's demand. I'm thinking a guy like you might be someone who would take a look at that. Is do you agree with him that there would not be d- demand for this? Um, I think there'd be a lot of demand. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we're obviously an institution as a life insurance company that needs duration. We have liabilities that go out for decades. We're not alone. You know, all TV pension plans need duration. Other life codes need duration. And I think that an ultra-long bond helps us with that, helps us manage our portfolios in the duration profile. So, yeah, well, I think there would be demand. What kind of yield would you expect uh, would, you know, intrigue you? Boy, I, I don't I don't have a number to throw off the top of my head to say yeah. what is the premium you need for that ultra long bond. I mean, it's uh, it's unusual that in some markets at ter- certain times you actually see marginally lower yields at the very back of the curve because there's so much demand for the for the longest duration piece of paper. I don't think that would be the case here, but you do see it. 
Steve, I talked to a lot of stock bulls, and they seem really optimistic about economic growth and, you know, the chance of recession they see being far, far out. What's making you cautious right now? Well, it is a Goldilocks scenario right now. I mean, and it has just, been for about, you know, eight years. But go on. <laughs> yeah, we've got Actually, low rates, low that. inflation, uh, global growth accelerating, high consumer confidence, high business confidence, record consumer net worth, etc. For us, it's as much about valuations as anything. You know, spreads are getting tighter. Cap rates in real estate are, are getting lower. Um, PEs are getting higher. So you have, you have less margin for error if something goes wrong. What scares me the most is I don't know what's going to go wrong because everywhere you look, things feel very supportive uh, of valuations, but you, there's less cushion. So incrementally, we ought to be the – high, the higher prices go, the incrementally more cautious we think we should be. Uh, recently, BlackRock actually downgraded U the U.S. credit space uh, to neutral, uh, for, I think, from overweight. Uh, basically, talking about the things you're talking about, these tight spreads, um, is that a similar sort of thinking that you have right now? Is it is it not so much that uh, the cycle's turning, but it's, you know, how, how, t how much tighter can these spreads actually get? Well, I think we, along with almost everyone else in the credit markets, has been talking about the credit cycle. And we've been using a baseball analogy. You know, we're in the late innings of the credit cycle. <laughs> the problem is there's no shot, there's no clock in a baseball game. So we may be in the seventh or eighth inning, but these innings can last a long time. Know, or you can go into extra innings. Yeah. How long they can last? Yeah, exactly. So, is that, so do you really think seventh or eighth inning of the credit cycle? Um, I think we're in the late innings, but I think that as we just talked about, economic fundamentals are really supportive. We've we've been surprised that they've continued to be supportive this long. Um, and I don't, it's hard to see that ending anytime soon. Um, so we just don't see tons of value to, in the market today. Especially in high yield, I guess. Especially in, across the credit markets. What about emerging markets? Um, I, I think that's tightened along with other markets. So I'm not sure that it's, um, um, you know, we see that that's standing out as a great value. But you like investment grade bonds. We focus mainly on investment grade bonds. What yeah. about the lowest rated uh, investment grade bonds, the triple B, because they've been adding leverage at a faster pace and their yields have tightened at a faster pace uh, than higher rated companies. You're right about that. And we, we've, we're big investors in the triple B part of the uh, rating category. And um, we've, I would say that at the margin, we've been reducing our allocation of triple Bs and moving into single A and double A securities along with this whole theme of about but, being incrementally cautious. But this is important because it means that your expected returns going forward are going to be much lower as a result. I would say we're giving up a, some incremental yield to, to, to make that trade, but we feel like that will pay off because if it gives us dry powder down the road, if we get a big widening of spreads, it'll be worth it. Yeah, Steve, there's also been a lot of talk about sort of the deteriorating quality of the covenants uh, out there. Is that something on your, your radar? Are you worried about that? Yeah, I am worried about it. I, I think uh, you, you definitely see it. Um, you see it in the middle market lending market. Certainly, I've had a lot of conversations with private equity investors who are surprised at how loose the terms are that they're getting on their deals. You see it in the high yield market. You see it in the leveraged loan market. Um, maybe less so in the investment grade market, uh, where you tend to, everything tends to be senior unsecured. But is that obviously a sign of late innings? I would I would imagine it's one of the things we look at. Yeah. Well, but here's the thing that that I I'm struggling to understand because with investment grade bonds, you do reduce the credit risk, but you increase the the interest rate risk. And at a time where Goldman Sachs Asset Management just came out and said they're expecting the 10-year yield to go to 3%, uh, that seems like just as big, if not a bigger risk at a time when all the fundamentals look okay. What do you make of that? Well, when we think about interest rate risk, we think about it relative to our liabilities. 
and we always stay pretty well matched. So we actually don't think we're taking much interest rate risk because we like to be matched in terms of the duration profile. So it doesn't matter to you? We don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether rates are going up or down because we're well matched. As far as companies go, they look pretty healthy to you. The latest earnings cycle makes you feel pretty confident. Um, yeah, earnings have been very strong. I mean, they, you know, I think you've got capital flowing to companies that need it. Earnings have been strong. The corporate environment feels healthy. The default rates are very low and probably going to go lower in the high yield markets. So there's a reason why spreads are this tight, right? I mean, it's a very healthy environment. Steve Peacher, thank you so much for joining us. The sort of dilemma uh, that we're hearing throughout markets right now as fund managers look at this incredibly high valuations but just don't see anything to really shake them uh, out of whack. Steve Peacher is president of Sun Life Investment Management, which oversees, I guess, almost $150 billion in assets, including Sun Life, uh, Sun Life Financial's own assets. And he comes to us here at our Bloomberg 1130 studios, but the firm based in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Today, we are going to be getting a look at Facebook's earning reports tomorrow. Apple, big question, can they continue their meteoric, stratospheric, whatever adjective you want to use, can they continue this incredible rally? Uh, joining myself and Mike Regan, uh, Bloomberg Stocks editor, Bloomberg Bloomberg personality extraordinaire. Uh, <laughs> That's it. Gonna, that, that, finally, the title. <laughs> finally, finally, the title you need. Um, I want to bring in Michael Scanlon, a portfolio manager uh, for Manulife Asset Management, based in Boston. And Michael, you, you own Apple. You own Facebook. Uh, is there a certain level that these uh, companies' shares can reach? At which point you will sell. Oh, good morning, and thanks for having me. Uh, you know, there certainly is a price that will sell any stock in the portfolio, but I think when you look at those two names and some of the other FANG names, which have obviously drawn a lot of attention on their run the last couple of years here, uh, you know, they still all have great secular opportunities in terms of growth, uh, generating a tremendous amount of cash, and we're even returning some of that cash to shareholders the last couple of years. Yeah, Michael, as far as that goes, I mean, um, I'm looking at Apple with a 1.5% uh, indicated dividend yield. Is Are they going to have to kick that up, do you think? So, you know, when you, when you look at Apple, yes, the dividend uh, yield isn't stated as all that great, but you got to remember that this is a company that kicks off a tremendous amount of cash and buys back roughly $35 billion of stock every year. That's, uh, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of 4% of the company. So when you add that 4% buyback kicker plus the dividend of about a point and a half, you know, you're getting kind of a 5.5% return on the stock before they grow their net income or the multiple potentially gets re-rated higher. So from a total capital return story, it's still quite a powerful story there. You know, uh, I'm wondering, is that, in your opinion, the best use of their cash? I mean, I'm, I looked at uh, Sony's earnings overnight uh, and uh, high-end television sets doing really well for Sony. Is Apple missing the boat on, on TV? Well, they've made a number of investments there over the years. If you think back kind of 12 to 18 months ago, there was the market was hot on some rumors that there was a, right. a TV coming out very soon, and ultimately that didn't unfold for them. You know, they do have the Apple TV, which they offer. You know, really what they're focused on is, is the services side of the business, which they mentioned a couple quarters ago that they're hoping to double. Uh, I would expect that there's you know, something in there in terms of content, one of these skinny bundles or how they actually do it. Um, but, you know, right now I don't see them launching a standalone television. 
So uh, yesterday, Facebook announced that they're going to double their security uh, and safety team to 20,000 people uh, in the upcoming year or so. And this is partly in response to uh, what we've been hearing down on Capitol Hill. This is day two of the tech hearings. How concerned are you about the increased costs associated with self-regulation? Forget whether Congress can get its act together to come up with something concrete from a regulatory standpoint, but they're going to have to spend more. Yeah, so when you look at any of these stocks uh, that we're talking about here today, kind of these FANG names, um, in my mind, the biggest risk to all these names is, you know, call it political risk. I mean, if you think back to what Microsoft went through for 10 years, the recent settlement that Google just had with the EU in terms of uh, listing their products first in search results, that is the biggest threat. And, you know, you would certainly expect that these companies uh, are going to to have to spend uh, in order to protect their reputation, obviously, with the, with this news issue around the election cycle and accepting the, the advertising dollars from what looks like Russian affiliates. Um, you know, they're going to have to continue to spend there to protect their businesses because the last thing they want to do is get caught up in the crosshairs of regulation. Yeah, and it's amazing adding 10,000 presumably pretty well-paid uh, security staff. I mean, you, you put a $100,000 a year salary on that. Way more. Right. For some of them. To, yeah. to conservatively, I mean, maybe 200000 You're looking at one or two billion a year, and the stock is up today. So, it, you know, with the earnings growth they have, uh, it seems like there's a lot of margin to, to do that. But what, how do you see the regulatory risk sort of manifesting? Would it be – is it that basically like an added cost of doing business uh, to prevent things like this from happening? Or could you envision a fine, some sort of antitrust uh, issues, anything like that? Well, uh, you know, trying to predict what these fines right. or antitrust results could look like is very difficult. Um, you know, I would say that you, that every investor expects that they're going to spend more in terms of preventing these incidents because obviously they're a reputational hit. Um, so, you know, there is an increased cost there. I think when you look at these names, they've got such strong secular trends. And, you know, Facebook specifically is going to grow their revenue probably north of 40% again this year. Right. Um, so there's tremendous revenue growth there that they can absorb some incremental costs. And, you know, when you look at these companies, they, they still have largely untapped markets that they they have, you know, visibility on 20% to 30% type revenue growth right. for a number of years going forward. Michael, real quick, are you adding to your shares of uh, Facebook and Apple? Well, I, I can't talk about uh, individual trading activity, but, you know, I think when you look at these two positions for us, Apple's our second biggest position in the portfolio and has been a holding since 2009, and Facebook's a long-term holding for us as well. Michael Scanlon, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager for Manulife Asset Management in Boston. Bullish on Apple, which releases earnings after the bell tomorrow, as well as Facebook, which releases earnings after the bell today. And of course, uh, we are going to be talking about the second day of tech hearings on Capitol Hill, in particular, Al Franken, who had some great comments about rubles uh, and ad dollars. October auto sales are trickling in. We got a Nissan, we've gotten Fiat Chrysler, we've gotten GM, we've gotten Ford here to break it all down, explain sort of the tale of two different uh, slices of the auto market. Jamie Butters joins us now. He's U.S. auto reporters, uh, a reporter for Bloomberg News coming to us from the Detroit Bureau. Jamie, uh, they're about half beats and half misses. Can you explain kind of what was under the, uh, the beats and what was under the misses here? 
Yeah, it's really been a, a mixed bag, uh, that's for sure. Uh, you know, some of it has to do probably with uh, the fleet sales, They're the, the large, the bulk sales that are kind of discounted um, and can be really lumpy and come in sometimes toward the end of the month. Uh, you know, Nissan's had these uh, really surprising uh, beats the last two months. Uh, they may be uh, doing a little extra uh, fleet action there, and, and they can uh, take some sales from some others. You know, Fiat Chrysler, they've been down for 14 months in a row. Uh, they, as they've discontinued some of their vehicles that really only sold to fleets that weren't very popular with actual, uh, you know, people. <laughs> who buy vehicles? <laughs> Consumers. That's the word for them. Yes. Uh, so you know they've had a had a long long uh, streak of declines, uh, but it's actually been a healthier business. We've seen uh, Fiat Chrysler's profits uh, increase as they've become more focused on you know Jeeps and pickups that that people really want to buy. I mean, the one thing that's been a, con- a constant throughout the day's results has been demand for full size trucks. Uh, they've just, they're doing really well. We're seeing a lot of construction activity around the country, probably also uh, starting to see some people snapping up trucks to do construction and cleanup work in places like Texas and Florida. Texas is a huge pickup market. It's the biggest pickup market anywhere. And, uh, you know, so a lot of the replacement demand there in Houston is, is going to be truck heavy. So that plays, plays well for Detroit. Certainly uh, Ford F-Series sales were very strong. GM had great pickup sales this month. Yeah, uh, Jamie, I meant to ask you about that. So how how do we read these numbers uh, sort of as an indicator of the the macro economy? If it sounds like the they're very noisy this month with uh, replacement vehicles, incentives. This is the the time of year when 2017 models are, are discounted. What's the the picture look like internationally? Uh, is there demand for pickups uh, outside of the U.S.? You know, the full size pickup is really a, a North American vehicle only. It's a, it's a U.S. and Canada vehicle. It's too big for the roads in most uh, parts of the country. But, you know, stepping back on the macro level for the U.S., right, you're, you're right. I mean, it's really noisy results company by company. Um, but what we're seeing overall is, is strong demand. It's, it's a good month. You know, we're pro- it might be close to an 18 million uh, pace. Uh, which which is very high uh, and almost you know 400,000 units better than uh, than the average estimate, so that might tell us that uh, that they are getting enough vehicles sold through the model year closeout that there's not going to need to be as much idling of factories uh, you know going yeah. into the winter months. Uh, so that's uh, it's a good sign for the U.S. economy broadly. Of course, you know winners and losers among among the players, right. uh, but it should mean uh, you know pretty. It, it should kind of keep feeding this uh, the GDP uh, growth in the U.S. Jamie, you know, I, just a couple of months ago, we were talking about how it looked like sales were declining by the double digits this year. All of a sudden now, everything looks great. How much is just simply uh, replacing vehicles that were lost in the multiple hurricanes that have hit the U.S. so far? It's uh, that's a great question. I've been asking all my uh, all my analyst friends, and and it looks like it's rough, kind of half and half. Maybe um, maybe a third to a half is really hurricane related, uh, you know, replacement of vehicles, and then you know, and like I said, sort of this hurricane repair related demand. Um, but the other probably half to two thirds, maybe you know, a little more, is really just this. They've been carrying too much inventory for a year maybe almost a year and a half. And, uh, you know, GM has some factory downtime as they retool for some uh, some new models, but industry's just been carrying a ton of inventory. Demand is 
you know, has been softening throughout the year. They don't want to go into calendar year 2018 with still 2017 model year vehicles on their lots. They've got to get rid of them, and they're and they're making that happen. So it's a lot of it is just, it's kind of some some discount driven, which is what we see at the end of the year, right? Everyone wants to hit their numbers. You get those Black Friday discounts, the December to remember kind of things. Uh, yeah. I, you know, those are going to get cranking up really soon. Uh, automakers and a lot of you know consumers have really come to to count on big sales at the end of the year. Jamie Butters, thank you so much for joining us. Jamie Butters, U.S. Autos reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Detroit. Mike, what kind of car do you have? You know, I'm primarily a pedestrian, but... uh... All right, then. <laughs> on, the weekend, I'll, shoes. on the weekend, I'll drive the uh, Toyota Highlander. Uh, I'm kind of like the Uber for my kids, though. That's that's my only driving I, I get in. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll be discussing extensively um, <laughs> the, the financials of being an Uber for uh, your kids. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.